This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your gumbers on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day, I'm Luke Radford. Welcome to Countrywide, coming to you from Bendigo on Jar Jar Land. Well, coming up today, running a video game on a tractor doesn't seem like a big deal, but there are massive security implications. You'll find out why in a minute. And also, agriculture continues to face a crippling labour shortage. It's quite unprecedented, really, that um, eight national food peak bodies have got together through their CEOs to highlight um, to government the chronic labour shortages that we're facing, not just in agriculture, but across the food supply chain. A deep dive into the agriculture employment shortage coming up a little bit later in the program. This is Countrywide. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Well, first today, Doom was a video game released in 1993. Featuring a space marine battling demons, it defined the first-person shooter genre and is commonly cited as one of the greatest games ever made. It's also become iconic in computer programming circles because they've managed to make the game run on practically anything with a screen. In the past 30 years since its release, Doom has been made playable on a graphics calculator, a printer, an electronic pregnancy test, and yes... 100 mouldy potatoes. But this week, an Australian security researcher managed to get it running on a John Deere tractor. But it's not all fun and games. Joining us now is ABC Bundaberg rural reporter Callie Buchanan. Callie, welcome to Countrywide. Thanks for having me. So what happened? Well, it's really quite interesting. There's this Australian hacker, his name is Sick Codes, and he's what's called a white hat hacker. So if you think of the old sort of uh, country western style movies, you know, your good guys wear the white hats and your bad guys wear the black hats. What white hat hackers do is they break into systems in an effort to get in and identify some of the flaws and then report those back to the affected parties rather than getting in there and causing damage if they were, say, a cyber criminal. So what Sick Codes actually did was demonstrate his control of a John Deere display on stage at a conference called DEFCON. It was held in Las Vegas, and it's the largest cyber security conference in the world. So here's, in his own words, exactly what he did. Purchased a John Deere 4240, which is one of their flagship in-cab tractor displays. It's literally just a tablet. Literally every piece of John Deere equipment that you can imagine can use this. And then I spent a couple of months pulling it apart and tinkering, not just with the hardware, but then also with the software, because I was able to get the software off the John Deere um, tractor display and then modify it in a significant way. <laughs> it's probably an understatement. I put Doom on there, the classic first-person shooter game. <laughs> I think everyone knows it, but yeah, it's classic. Anyway, I made a tractor edition version of it with a fellow modder named Skelligant from New Zealand. It's quite fun, actually, but yeah, not just Doom, but Tractor Doom. So yes, as you said, Doom has managed to turn up on all sorts of devices. I've actually seen a meme getting around with the the Antikythera mechanism, which is regarded as the world's oldest computer. It's kept in a secure vault for two specific reasons. One is to prevent corrosion and the other is to stop someone putting Doom on it. But that's essentially (laughs) what he did. 
So apart from apart from hacker culture, really, why install Doom? What it does is it shows your complete control of a system. So you might hear somebody talk about jailbreaking their phone. That's the idea of cracking open the code and all the protections that your phone manufacturer puts on there so that you can install your own programs and do your own thing. So by being able to show a, a running version of Doom, a playable version, what that demonstrates is that he had complete and utter control. They call it root access. He'd gone right into the bottom of the, the code and taken control of that device. So what did he actually need to do to basically get it running outside of what you were saying there in terms of getting into the, the background code? Well, yeah, so these consoles can connect to the internet, but that's not what he did. He actually bought one online and spent months breaking it open and accessing the motherboard. So connecting wires to the motherboard, working out what each little you know, grey node did, pulling the code out of that by connecting it to a- another computer, then he reworked it and put it back in. And so it was a physical hack, not a digital hack, which is an important distinction to make, particularly because John Deere says at no point were a customer's or a dealer's equipment network or data at risk from this specific hack. Uh, but he, he basically, yeah, broke it open, fiddled with the, the mechanisms inside it, pulled out the existing code, reworked it and put it back in. And so when he was in that process of doing that, he actually came up, up against some of the same frustrations that farmers face when they are trying to repair their own equipment. I was requested to contact my local dealer. And of course, the local dealer was about 1,500 kilometres away. So there has to be a way around it. And I actually presented a way around it, which was you just have to add a text file to the USB stick. I was able to successfully bypass the thing that required me to have a local dealer. So just having that alone is kind of like something that farmers can actually take away and be like, oh, no, I don't need to wait three days to get my combine fixed in the middle of harvest season. Yeah, so he basically rebooted the machine so much it went into dealership mode and had to find a way around that as well, which is a, a situation farmers can find themselves in too. And as we kind of mentioned earlier on, it's this, this isn't just a funny experiment to try and get Doom running on the tractor. What's he actually managed to prove with this? What's been really interesting is by getting that full control, that full access to the system, he's been able to see the code that was used to develop it, but then also the infrastructure that that's built on. So it's kind of like if you were to pull the sheeting off your wall and have a look at the framing and the wiring of your house. And essentially what he found was a lot of openly available code that was borrowed off the internet, so open source code, and an operating system that's around about the equivalent of Windows XP, hasn't been supported since 2013, hasn't been patched or updated. So for tech people, it was kind of like opening up that wall in your house and finding termites. What does that mean for the right to repair? Essentially, often manufacturers will argue that they don't need to provide manuals or information about how these systems work because it's too complex for farmers to access themselves And that's why you need to call the dealer if the system needs a reboot. And it's an argument about after-sales service. But what Right to Repair advocates have said is that this shows that that technology is not as complex as some of the manufacturers claim, that it's well within the skill set of farmers to fix these machines and that they should be entitled to have more information about how they work and how they can fix them themselves. But outside of the right to repair, this also, given that it's running on a 20-year-old operating system, potentially exposes some security flaws, right? It absolutely does. And it's part of this global ag tech boom. We've seen so many different programs and devices and, and apps that have been 
brought out to assist in productivity, particularly in agriculture. You know, we talk about robotic harvesters and pickers, but then there's, you know, data systems where you can analyse the genetics of your cattle herd and start selecting via particular traits. All of those things are being developed really quickly as this particular field takes off, which is not uncommon in technology. But for security experts like Palo Alto Networks, which is one of the largest cybersecurity firms in the world, their Asia-Pacific chief security officer, Sean Duca, says it shows just how many of these new devices get shipped with security as an afterthought. You know, whether it's a tractor, whether it's a piece of, you know, agricultural technology, you can't really think about going out and installing some sort of security technology after the fact. If you borrow code from someone else's code base and you want to start to embed that into your own technology, how about we start to scan that? Start to see if there's any vulnerabilities or exposures that potentially could cause an issue. There's no sector that's sort of, that's going to be left sort of unscathed because everything is up for grabs. And when it comes to a cyber criminal, when it comes to a nation state, they cast their net as far and wide as they possibly can to try and get access to as many systems as they can. These devices, more and more are coming out. They're going to be incident enabled, which means that you'll be able to sit in your lounge room and effectively watch and see what's going on. And if you can do it from your lounge room, then that means that many other people will be able to access and see what's going on from their own lounge rooms too. So that really does show the scale of the, what, what developers and the people who use their devices are up against. Sean Duker kind of touched on it there, but what kind of attacks could farmers be seeing out of this? Oh, and this is the really, I guess, the, the pertinent point for people purchasing these devices in particular. You might think that, oh, if I'm buying an automated irrigation system that I can control off my iPad, who's going to target that? Who's going to come looking for the, you know, the nitrogen that I'm providing to my cucumbers? But the reality is that around about every 11 seconds, an Australian comes under cyber attack. And it's not a targeted attack. It's an automated attack. So it's everything from the kind of ransomware where they lock up your system and you have to pay money to get out to that they've developed this, what we've seen growing is this idea of naming and shaming. So not only will they take your data, but they will then tell everyone they've got it and release it. But there's also this idea of ransomware as a service. So it's not just coders and hackers to be worried about. Organised criminals have moved online and they will pay a coder to develop for them malicious software that they then lease back and pay for in the ransom they collect. So it's gone low tech as much as it is high tech as well. And if you're just a local accountant using accountancy software that gets hacked, that can crush your business. But globally, it has the potential to impact food production. And as Sean Duca pointed out to me, you don't have to be as big as JBS to be targeted. You know, once upon a time, there was X amount of banks that you could probably rob in a year. Now you could effectively go online and you could effectively start to rob or fleece people hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars at any single point in time. I think sometimes people can see that it's easy to say, oh, it's their problem, it's their problem. But the impact could actually be catastrophic. There could be a possibility that something could actually happen where it does actually impact our food supply. If they don't actually have any security capabilities, you know, vote with your wallet. Start talking about it today, but then also take the talk into action. Because in the end, we will all have to be able to do this. I think if we start to work out what are the crown jewels of our nation, and if agriculture is one of them, well, we need to start thinking about how do we protect it. And cybersecurity has definitely been top of mind for the new government. They have been working with the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, looking at some of these risks, some of their threats to things like food security and national security, and ways to support industries to have that protection built in from the start. Kelly Buchanan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Countrywide. Anytime.
Callie Buchanan, our ABC Bundaberg Rural Reporter, speaking there about the security implications of running Doom on a tractor. You're listening to Countrywide. Next, the prestigious Bob Hawke Award has been awarded to New South Wales farmer Bruce Maynard at this year's National Landcare Conference. Bruce has been an innovator in stock handling and has implemented a no-kill approach to land management and vegetation. He explained his award-winning farm system to Michael Condon. Well, it is inspirational, uh, really, that uh, uh, the collaboration of uh, Philip Toyne, Rick Farley and Bob Hawke from very different aspects of the political spectrum uh, produced something that has been so lasting in uh, in Landcare Australia and uh, Landcare has gone internationally as well. So what a success. And what's been your secret, do you think? I think the uh, uh, the basis of it is real connection to community. It is from, uh, from the bottom-up type movement and, uh, and that is where its real power lies. The idea of no-kill, tell us about that. Where does that come from? Right, that's one of our developments, and no-kill cropping produces crops within grasslands without simplifying them. So it's one way. It's not the only way, of course, uh, but it is one way of producing grain where we don't have to get rid of uh, the whole biodiversity uh, in order to produce something that we need as humans. And you also look at uh, keeping the cattle quiet, you, you know, cattle behaviour that you've been a student of that? Yes, yes, we've developed up um, uh, level three and level four competencies in in that um, uh, field and uh, that is stress-free stockmanship and then now the whole new field of uh, self-herding which uh, really is exciting because that uh, changes livestock and other animal behaviour across the whole landscapes which means we change landscapes and food and the whole consequences that flow from that. Does that mean you're sort of a student of the like the Temple Grandin sort of, or you incorporate some of those some of those overseas ideas as well? Right, yeah, that's level uh, one, uh, and so now in Australia we've taken that on to level three and four. So uh, that's where it's really exciting out in the rangelands of uh, Central Australia and Western Australia in particular. There are landholders that are really pioneering, world-leading uh, innovations in uh, behavioural adaptation of animals, which uh, changes uh, the whole game. And you're also um, talking about, you know, the natives and you're also uh, trying to stay as, as close to the sort of natural bush as you can where possible. How do you do that? Yes, I think that's a, f- a foundational part as far as I see for regenerative agriculture is that the base of the, uh, uh, of the foundations of the systems must be provided by natural and local systems. They're we don't need to get outside inputs. So Australian native landscapes are unique and so therefore we have the opportunity to produce unique products from those landscapes. Narromine farmer Bruce Maynard, winner of the $50,000 Bob Hawke Award for Land Care for 2022. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. How often do you think about the workers that get the food from the farm to your plate? I say this, of course, because next week unions, government, employers and industry bodies will meet to create a long-term national employment strategy. Richard Forbes is the CEO of Independent Food Distributors Australia and he says the food sector needs 172,000 extra workers. He told Michael Condon this long-term shortage could impact food security and will only be solved by having more migrants higher wages and increased manufacturing. 
It's quite unprecedented, really, that um, eight national food peak bodies have got together through their CEOs to highlight um, to government the chronic labour shortages that we're facing, not just in agriculture, but across the food supply chain. And I think that's a really important point to make, that it's important that the agricultural sector understand the pressures on distribution warehouses, on supermarkets, right through to food, food retail from an independent grocer and butcher perspective, um, in fish processing plants, meat processing and so on. So it, it's important that the food supply chain did get together um, in, in this situation before the Skills and Jobs Summit to highlight the issue. And so what's the solution to this, paying higher wages? Well, we've calculated that we're short about 172,000 workers from paddock to plate. Um, the solution, well, we need to look at a suite of tools, and that can be looking at um, new visa pathways for uh, overseas workers that we just haven't thought of. Um, we need to think about how we incentivise local workers, you know, to, to um, consider working in a lot of these different industries, because I think... To be perfectly frank, there's such a plethora of jobs on offer at the moment that, that people can pick and choose. Um, and that means that, you know, they may not choose working in an abattoir or a meat processing plant or a fish processing plant. We've got a chronic shortage of truck drivers to distribute food around Australia at the moment. So how we incentivise people, I think the government, through the Skills and Jobs Summit, needs to think about, firstly, prioritising the food sector because food is an essential service to the community and then coming up with viable, practical solutions um, that will help um, solve some of these issues we're facing at the moment. So there's talk about increasing migration to beyond 200,000 uh, a year, uh, up from the level it's at now, so up by about 100,000. Is that going to solve the problem or do we need skilled workers in these jobs? We need a percentage of skilled workers, but primarily my understanding across the food supply chain, largely unskilled workers is key. So an extra 100,000 coming in from overseas you know, is great. But so migrants could at, do those jobs? They could do some of those jobs, absolutely. But I, you know, I think um, we also need to look at, at, at domestic workers as well. We need to ensure that they are trained and that they stay in those roles for a period of time. Because at the moment, we've got family-owned businesses across Australia having to pay four or 5% increases in salary just to keep them on the ground. You know, and that is just unsustainable um, through you know, what we've seen on the impact in hospitality and warehousing and across the chain because of COVID. So you know, we've got a, another perfect storm with those global factors, inflationary pressures domestically. So we do need solutions. And I think this is the type of issue in the cost of living debate that the government can influence. They can't influence global oil prices, but they can certainly come up with strategies to help in these chronic labour shortages that we're facing at the moment. Richard Forbes, CEO of Independent Food Distributors Australia. And continuing with this topic, distributors aren't the only ones in trouble. Seafood businesses across the country are struggling to fill their fishing boat crews due to the labour shortage. According to Seafood Industry Australia, the commercial fishing sector is short almost 3,000 workers, and that gap could also lead to more supply issues 
and price rises. Keely Johnson has this report. Here in Coffs Harbour, there is no one. If you don't have crew, permanent crew, you don't go to work. Simple as that. That's Andrew Gilbert, chair of the Coffs Harbour Fishermen's Co-op. For months, he's been watching fishers unable to head out to sea each morning as they struggle to find reliable workers. And it's not just happening in Coffs Harbour. It's all up and down the coast. No, no one can get crew. You just can't find crew anymore. You know, we've, we've set up websites, social media. It's all Australia-wide, basically, where people are looking for crew and um, you can't find anyone. And if you do find someone, then you, you can't put training into them because then two days later they walk off the boat and you never see them again. So you, you don't know where you go. Most of the time it's, it's pretty hard to watch all the other boats go to sea when you're sitting there with no crew. And, um, you know, the only way the business makes money is by going to sea. And um, unfortunately, with the amount of crew that are around, a lot of boats don't go to sea. Well, that's it. So days lost at sea and just not being able to keep up with their regular schedule, I suppose. Does it affect supply, not getting as many boats out oh, there? Of course. Of course it does. If, you know, the less fishermen are out at sea, the less supply there is. Like, there's, there's very limited supply as it is. Um, people screaming for seafood and... You know, half our fleet is, to, we've got four to five big boats every night tied up here in Coffs that have got no crew, and you just can't find them anywhere. Is there anything you'd like to see? I mean, government step in to maybe support the industry in general? Well, we've, we've been through um, the agencies trying to get more crew in. Um, we don't seem to be getting anywhere with that. It's just the, the, the people won't show up for interviews, or they just don't turn up, or they turn up and have a look, and they... They go again. Yeah, I, I just like to see something happen in the industry. It's just getting too hard. Um, you know, I've just put, recently put a new crew on myself. I had to get him down from Darwin uh, just to have a deckhand. We had to fly him and train him down here. And uh, as I say, if they walk off the, off the boat in a week or two, well, you, you're just out of pocket again. Veronica Papacosta is the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia and says urgent action is needed to address the shortage. I think the real labour crisis and we, we do recognise that it, it is a crisis. It is, this is not just a difficulty, this is a, an impending issue. Probably started about 12 months ago. We started to see uh, boats not getting minimum crewing sizes, aquaculture businesses calling out the lack of process workers on, on supply chains and on farms and post-harvest really struggling for seafood processing. And I will point out that post-harvest is in major cities as well as in regional areas. But this crisis is really biting deep we think it will have will keep going for another six to twenty four months possibly, and the the slowing of fishing activity, the slowing of aquaculture activity, really has an impact on the flow through supply that we can provide to consumers. So accessing Australian seafood will get tougher. That will impact on price, and this is something that we don't want to see. We want to get boats fishing, and we want to get aquaculture businesses moving as quickly as we can. Do you know roughly how many workers you may need? We're looking at shortages of around two and a half to 3,000 workers at the moment, and we don't know what that will look like as we move forward. And what would you like to see maybe from government level to address this before things get worse? Whilst we invest in the Australian worker community and local labour in regional communities is really important to us, to fix this crisis, we need access to foreign labour now. So we need solutions that we can either get the people already on the ground in Australia working more, so easing restrictions, or we need ways of actually getting short-term access to foreign labour to get us through this crisis. We will always want to invest and train and upskill Australian labour, but we are in a crisis mode, so we do 
we do need a response now. Veronica Papacosta is the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia, ending that report by Keely Johnson. And lastly today, fabrics are also facing supply challenges. The struggle in the wool industry to find shearers has been well documented. But with a cracking season on the go, the cotton industry are also desperate to get more harvesting machines. Lucy Cooper spoke with Jeff Jacks, the general manager at RDO Equipment. It's, it's something that I haven't seen uh, happen as, uh, to this level over the last um, 12 months. We've had a lot of interest in new cotton pickers uh, this year. We delivered um, one of our larger years, uh, that was earlier this year. We had all the challenges around freight and, um, and getting the manpower to put them together. But off the back of the price of cotton and the yields and the weather, the, you know, all those factors come together uh, and we've, we've really had a lot of built up demand because we've had some, a number of quiet years with selling cotton pickers with the drought, price of cotton being down, etc. So, we're pretty, uh, we were pretty prepared for the demand, but we weren't prepared this much. And uh, so it did overwhelm us with the expressions of interest, which we asked for uh, several months ago from our growers. And, uh, and then we've recently converted those, a number of those into orders after the factory gave us the allocation, which uh, was never enough. But we appreciate what they did, which is, uh, is going to help a lot of growers get in new machines for the next season. So right now we're hoping those machines are built in time and can be uh, transported out here efficiently uh, to, uh, to meet the season uh, in 2023. Where's all that high demand come from? Is it just off the back of the cracking season? Uh, I think there's a few factors there, the season. And, um, you know, uh, price of cotton and the yields are up. Uh, this year the yields are a lot higher on average than they have been. And I think that's uh, all come together in the perfect storm, if you like. But um, a cotton picker is uh, certainly the new model we have here, which is, uh, is proven this year to be very productive. And uh, next year, I'm sure, with the improvements they've made, they'll even improve uh, their performance better. Uh, so I think it is just all these factors coming together. And, um, you know, we've seen it in other products as well. But the cotton picker is sort of like uh, the, the pinnacle or the beacon that people go to when they talk about, well... How's the industry going? Well, you know, cotton pickers are selling, so it's got to be going okay. I cannot think of a, another piece of equipment or machinery. Uh, I mean, not only for the cost, but the high demand, and you're only using it a month out of the year. Um, I, I mean, how are you guys kind of going about shortening up those wait times? Is there anything you can do? Um, production times are pretty well fixed, so we know that. But our challenge is the... Um, the logistics, the freight, the sea freight. Um, we're at the mercy of those um, businesses and uh, this last year we, we had some delays and that was not good. We managed our way through it, but uh, once they get built, there's still no guarantee of them arriving at a certain date. So we've got to manage that. We've got to follow and track those machines across the water and make sure we're prepared at this end for delays, but our capability at this end then to pre-deliver them uh, in a timely manner is our other challenge which we're working on now. Cotton pickers, John Deere hold the monopoly in that market. Mm. Uh, RDO in Australia also similarly uh, very dominant and, and prominent. How do you guys go about, I, I suppose quite frankly, is if a guy wants to pick his cotton, he has no choice. He has to go for the green machine and, and go through you guys. So how I suppose are you trying to ensure that there's no taking advantage of these farmers? Um, 
Well, I guess it's... I'm not sure how many people would take that um, thought pattern, but, you know, we've got long relationships with many of our owners and growers, and uh, they rely on those relationships as much as we do. So we like to think that uh, the trust is both ways, uh, and certainly is from our point of view. Um, uh, if other manufacturers want to build a cotton picker, the market's there for it, uh, but they've got to invest in it. And through history, John Deere's done a better job, I'd say, of uh, investing in the product and the performance of that product. Is the market there for it, though? Because you guys do have that patent on the round baler, so... Oh, yeah, that's only one portion of it, though. That's only one part of it. There's plenty of other engineers in the world that could figure out something probably equally as efficient. Uh, they, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, I don't know. But good luck to them, and uh, we're, uh, we're all for competition. Um, and uh, I think... I think that's uh, the strong part of our business, regardless of whether it's cotton pickers or tractors. We've got to uh, earn the business we get, and our customers um, ultimately judge that. Jeff Jacks, General Manager of Operations at RDO Equipment, speaking there with Lucy Cooper. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Countrywide. For more rural content, check out the ABC Rural website. Until next time, keep it rural.